I'm Stan Rowland, and as Ravi said, you know, on the airplane, before they close the doors, they tell you where you're going. And to say, if you don't want to come to Louisville, this is where this plane is going, you better get off. Well, you're in Louisville, and and the session that you're in is on neighborhood transformation, working with the urban poor here in North America instead of overseas. How do we apply the community health evangelism strategy in urban settings? We're going to do a tag team with you. Oh. I guess I'm supposed to press something. We're going to do a tag team with you. I'm going to bag this. I, I talk loud anyway, so I sure don't need that. We're going to do a tag team with you. I'm going to give you a very quick overview of some highlights of what is neighborhood transformation. So it'll be kind of the 30,000 feet. And then Ted Cates is the outreach pastor for Pantano Christian Church in Tucson, Arizona church of about 2,500, and he'll tell you more about it, and they have actually been applying neighborhood transformation in Tucson. So we'll give you a little theory overview, and then Ted will tell you the truth of how it works or doesn't work, okay? How many of you have ever been through some kind of CHE, Community Health Evangelism Introduction? Or know something about Che? Okay. Not too many. Okay, that's fine. I I need to get a reading so I know where to, how far to begin. Community Health Evangelism is is a program that's been going for about 35 years all over the world in about 80 countries. It helps villages identify what assets they have, what skills they have, what they want to do, and then they are trained how to do that by a group of trainers. This has been going, started in Uganda in 1980, and it's now being used in about 80 countries of the world, in about uh, about 2,500 villages and neighborhoods. And about four years ago we said, how can we modify what we're doing to work with the urban underserved, the urban poor. Here, primarily in North America, though we're starting to do this overseas as well, in large metropolitan cities. So with that background, let me tell you a little bit about neighborhood transformation. I'm going to be a motor mouth fast. I want you to think about what if poverty were greatly reduced in neighborhoods? What if people used their God-given assets to help themselves and their neighbors? What if we listened to what people wanted to do in their neighborhood and then helped them do it? What if you and I as Christians walked the talk of word and deed and not just word? 
What happens if this were multiplied individual to individual and then by congregating the people together in their neighborhood, they begin to change the neighborhood where they live. And then that neighborhood begins to change other nearby neighborhoods so that over a long period of time, a whole city is transformed from the inside out, person by person. What's our biblical basis? The strong one is 1027. You remember that one? What are we supposed to do? With? Body and strength. Hmm, okay, how many of you do that? I won't ask that question. But then we get into a meddling portion of that verse where God really sticks it to us. The second half. What's the second half say? Love? You mean that jerk that lives down the street? That person that I can't really... You know, his dog does stuff on my grass and you know, his kid, all that stuff. The whole commandment is to love God totally and then love your neighbor the way you love yourself. And who do you love yourself? How do you love yourself, really? Number one, two, and three, four, right? And so what we're trying to do is equip people sitting in the pews, how to reach out to their neighbors. Secondly, Luke 18 and 19, which is the same as Isaiah 61, 2 and 3. Anybody know what that is? It's Jesus coming in from the desert. He's teaching in the synagogue. And he reads from Isaiah. And he's talking about how we're supposed to love and what we're supposed to do. Preach the good news, yes. Give sight to the blind. Comfort the prisoners. A few things like that. Physical and spiritual. Now, one of the problems is that when we're working with the poor, and particularly in an urban area, what do you see in an urban area? When you walk into a really underserved urban neighborhood, what do you see? Hmm? Garbage. What else? Okay, what else? Hmm? What else? Okay. We see all kinds of bad stuff. We see crime. We see garbage. We see broken relationships. We see junk cars. We hear loud music. We smell crack houses. We, in other words, we see all the bad stuff. Right? Well, that's true. And you see all these kinds of things. We see poverty. There's a great movie, extremely depressing movie, called Bless the Child. It's a Hollywood movie about five years ago. And it follows a single mom going from working poor to homeless to welfare, and then back to living on the street again. Oh, and in shelters, living in shelters, and there are all kinds of shelter varieties. And it really 
depicts in a kind of exaggerated way, but not really, what many urban poor neighborhoods look like. But that's all the negative. That's all the negative. The thing that we, and when we think about welfare people, there are probably four different categories. One category is generational welfare. That's the number one that we think of, right? People that have been on welfare, one generation, second generation. The second one is immigrants. Immigrants have high amount of skills, but they can't use them here in the U.S. A guy can be a doctor, registered, fully qualified cardiac surgeon, and he can't even qualify to be an orderly in a hospital. So immigrants, plus we have a lot of unskilled immigrants too, but immigrants are a second group. A third group is a growing group, the working poor, and that's growing. The fourth group is me, senior citizens on fixed income, though I'm not trapped. But many senior citizens that had their house in a nice neighborhood, they've lived in that house 40 years, the neighborhood's changed, They've gotten older, and as you get older, you can't quite do the stuff you used to do, and your house needs repair, and you're on fixed income. You might have had a nice pension, but with inflation, your pension is zero or very low. And so these are the generally four categories that we work with in neighborhood transformation. There's a fifth category which in general we don't work with, and that's the homeless. Why? Why is working with the homeless different than working with these four? Practical aspect. Pardon? Practical aspect of maintaining relationships. Okay. Yeah, because they, they move around. What else? Pardon? A lot of mental yeah, a lot of mental illness, addictions, etc. So you've got to heal them first before you can start to do and equip them to help others. First, you've got to get them so they can survive. So in general, when I talk about neighborhood transformation, I'm not talking about the homeless. So we're working with a group in Orlando. They're working with all four of these, and they've added the fifth. They're actually working in a homeless shelter. So we'll, we'll see how that works. Now, the key thing is, though, that all the poor have assets. What's an asset? What is an asset? That's a nice fancy word. What is that? Resources, talents. Okay, resources, skills, talents, knowledge, passions, abilities. Do you have them? Absolutely. Do many people know what those assets are that you have? Probably not. Same in an urban poor setting. I don't care how lowly educated or uneducated you are, how low your IQ is, how poor you are, you have assets waiting to be used. And every neighborhood has assets waiting to be used. But we historically come in as a middle class Christian 
And we say, oh, these poor people, we have the heart of compassion. I'm going to do, do, do this for you. Aren't you pleased? And we totally ignore that there is great ability waiting to be used in every neighborhood. How would you like to always be on the receiving end? Everybody just keeps giving you, and you never get a chance to give anybody, give back anything. Would you like that? I don't think any of us do. But that's what we do with the poor. And so the key is to concentrate on assets. It's a second thing that we're doing. Back in the village days, how many of you grew up in a rural town here? When you had a need, if you lived in a rural town growing up, where did you go when you needed help? Big city, yeah, but where else did you go? Your neighbor, your if your neighborhood church, if there was one, and your extended family, if if you'd lived in this village for quite this neighbor, the small town in the U.S. for a long time, your uncles lived around there and your aunts lived around there, right? You have a safety network. Mm-hmm. The cities used to be, but they aren't. Because who comes to the city? I don't care if it's Nairobi, Kenya, or Chicago, Illinois. Where do people come from? From all over the place. That means they have no relatives, safety net. That means they're isolated. And many of us go to a city to be isolated. We want to do our own thing. And when we need help, who do we go to then? Now, this is not a nice thing to say in this group, but to professionals. The doc's going to fix me. The psychologist is going to fix me. The social worker is going to fix me. But the vast bulk of fixing and helping can be done by neighbors. Used to be. And so what Neighborhood Transformation and Che is all about is reinstituting neighbor, helping neighbor. And one of the things that we do in neighborhood transformation is do it in a geographical area. And you don't want a big geographical area. In most cities today, elementary school kids still walk to school, most. When you get to middle school, what happens to them? They get bust, right? And when they get to high school, they drive. But if you concentrate on a neighborhood that's geographically the elementary school's the center, it gives you a nice small neighborhood that's not unsimilar to a village. One, two thousand, three thousand people. And so neighborhood transformation is geographically based. Now, where do you find assets? There are multiple places to find assets. One is at individuals. And one of the things that we do is we want to find out in a neighborhood what do people do with their hands? What are some skills that you have, that you guys do with your hands? 
What do you do? Hmm? Yeah, absolutely. What else? Yeah, cook. What else? Work on a car, yeah. Sewing? Yeah, I'm, in other words, we all have. What knowledge do you have that might be of use to somebody else? What knowledge? English. Yeah, English, particularly if you're working with immigrants, you know, in an immigrant neighborhood. Just simple old English. What else? Science. Pardon? Science. Yeah. So there, everybody has knowledge. Then we ask a question, what are you passionate about? What turns you on? Not your, other than your spouse. <laughs> or your boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever. But everybody has something that they really get excited about. Maybe nobody knows it, but you want to find that out. Then you ask the question, what would you like to learn if teaching were done here? And you find what people want to learn. So the whole idea is to find out what assets are found in the people in the neighborhood. Now, there's a second, and that's in associations. These are informal groups that you find in every neighborhood. What would be, and they are not necessarily doing something for the neighborhood, but they're groups that are meeting in a neighborhood. What might be some groups? Pardon? Yep. What else? Gardening club, sure. Block watch, yeah. Gangs, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so there are many groups already functioning in the neighborhood. You want to find out who are those groups for what purpose. So you can go be part of them. So you can join in. So you can develop the big R word. You know what that is. Relationship, relationship, relationship. And so there are lots of things going on. And then there are institutions. An institution is your school, your community police department. If if you're lucky, a library or something like that. There may be nonprofits working there. You know, a clinic that's there. Neighborhood association is a very good one. So these are all there. You want to find out who's doing what where. Not just so you can put it in a database so that you can begin to participate in the neighborhood's life. Because the key is what? Relationships, which builds trust. So, why do we focus on needs, on assets instead of needs? The chart shows it. When you focus on needs, you build on what's not there. You don't have this, this, and this. When you focus on needs, we provide services to you. Aren't you happy that we provide those services? And we become very enamored with programs. Programs are the answer. And what does it do? It fosters dependency. So we say, uh uh-uh, stop focusing on needs. But 90% 
of most programs focus on needs. We do needs assessment. Medical people, you go out and do needs assessment, right? All the time. So what are you doing when you do that? Some of those problems that show up. So we really are emphasizing focus on assets. Why? Because it builds on what's there. You've got this skill and this skill and this organization. It provides connections because just to know what's there isn't good enough. You know how to play the guitar and you want to learn how to play the guitar. What do you do? Connect the person that knows with the person that wants to learn. So it's connection-based, relationship-based. Third, it becomes programs aren't the answer. It's people, you, in that neighborhood are the answer. And it builds interdependence among neighbors. Neighbor helping neighbor. So... The emphasis of neighborhood transformation, urban Che, is focus on assets, not needs. Now, I say that, but getting focusing on assets, how are you going to find out what assets are in a neighborhood? What are you going to have to do? Talk to people. Walk the streets. Speak, walk your dog. Go talk to them. You might even, oh, this is horror of horrors, have to go knock on a stranger's door. And what of us middle classers hate the most? People coming to our door. And so we have a big wall that we have to get across. And it is. But there are all kinds of other ways, too, to get this information. But you want to do it eyeball to eyeball. Why? Relationships. Relationships. You have to have enough of a relationship to get honest answers. Yep. And there's some ways that you can get in. But the whole point is you're really after relationships. Now, there are three ways, and normally I don't have this much time, but there are three kinds of ministry, three types of ways to help people. Relief. What's an activity that would be a relief activity that most churches do? Pardon? Yep. Food, clothes, giveaways, all those kinds of things. Very, very common. Betterment is a middle. Not too many churches are doing it. Some are. But a betterment is where you come alongside somebody to help them better themselves. So you're kind of a coach. ESL. ESL. Perfect example. What would be another one? Pardon? Literacy volunteers. Yep. Tutoring. Tutoring kids. So you're coming alongside for a period of time to help people with the idea that they then are going to be able to function on their own at some, at generally six months or a year, most people are thinking. Development is when you've basically worked with people, they begin to actually do things on their own, and they practice 2 Timothy 2.2. 
Anybody know what 2 Timothy 2.2 is? Say it. Yeah, they teach others to apply what they've learned and to teach it to others who apply it and teach it to others and others and others and others. And so you begin to see development take place when people are beginning to teach others and then you're aggregating them together so that they're beginning to change a neighborhood, a village, whatever. So you're after individual change, but you're most important after community change too. And I do a river crossing story. How many of you have seen that with me? Or Yeah. That demonstrates that very well, much better than me talking about it. Helping should be built upon identifying and utilizing the assets already found in the neighborhood. It should be built on mobilizing individuals, associations, and institutions to come together to build on their assets and not concentrate on their needs. We look for churches that are externally focused. Anybody ever hear the externally focused church movement here? This is a movement that got started about five, six years ago. And the whole concept of the movement of externally focused was that the church begins to do things in a neighborhood as a work day. It might be a work day where they go do something, uh, clean a school, clean up a park, sometimes paint people's homes. In other words, it was a visibility day. But the whole concept was to get people outside of those four walls to do stuff for people in the community. And so you're looking for churches that are beginning to be interested in reaching outside of their community, not just to do evangelism, but to do word, which is evangelism, and deed, both. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the whole concept of what we're doing is to build and find churches that are ready to reach out. Helping should reawaken neighborhood neighbors helping neighbors. It should promote self-help within the neighborhood, not providing services. Now, that's not saying providing services is wrong. You need to have those services. We aren't saying, stop doing that, naughty, naughty. It isn't. It's fine. But if you really want to see people's lives changed, you've got to begin to move them on to empowerment where they're taking more responsibility and they're teaching others, multiplying. Because real learning doesn't take place. It takes place when I begin to apply it. How many of you have learned something and then had to go teach that to somebody else? When you went to teach somebody else, how much more did you learn than just the first time? Mm -hmm. A lot more. Okay? And so you're really after that whole process. We're interested in finding local leadership in a community. Remember, we mentioned what groups are already in the neighborhood. Many cities already have the 
city broken into neighborhoods, and in some of those neighborhoods, you mentioned, Scott, a neighborhood association. It's a group of people that live in that neighborhood that have come together for some reason to to help change that neighborhood. And there are neighborhood associations, and if there aren't none, if there are none, then you would go ahead and actually help form one when you get to that stage. That isn't at the beginning stage, but it's, it's an important part. So neighborhood transformation is built on assets. It's built on community mobilizing. It's built on community organizing. It's built on the community taking responsibility for their own lives and their neighborhood. That's what it's all about. It's partnering with groups already in the neighborhood. Now, we belong and strongly believe it's the church's responsibility to do this. How many of you have ever heard of Christian Community Development Association, CCDA, John Perkins? And they have four P's, and one of their P's, no, four R's. <laughs> And one of their R's is relocation. If a middle-class person wants to work with the urban poor, they say you really need to live there. Well, I agree with that. You need to live there. If you live there, you'll have more impact. But how many middle-classers are going to move into an urban poor neighborhood? If you get 1%, you're lucky. So does that mean then that the middle classers that live in the, in the middle class neighborhood are off the hook? And we believe that. We want to help them move in, to work in that neighborhood with relationships. Some of those, after they're working there a period, I may want to move there. And that's great. But that's not a criteria for helping the urban poor. And so... With that in mind, what we are doing is working with middle-class churches primarily, and we're helping them reach out to nearby urban poor communities. Where do the poor live today? In the city center? Where do they live? The ring around the city? They live all over because of three things, probably. One is there's a nasty word that developers use, gentrification. You ever hear that word? What's it mean? Gentrification means that you take your downtown where the urban poor is, you tear out all the old rotten buildings there, and you build very nice new buildings where all the young professionals live, and etc. And what does that do with the urban poor? Out. Secondly, 20 years ago, we, all the urban poor lived in high-rise government apartment, government-owned apartments. About during Clinton's time, they began to say this isn't working, which it wasn't, and they began to go to subsidized housing. Subsidized housing was when an apartment complex owner would say, "I will take so many poor." And I will get this amount of rent. And typically they were 
the first ring of nice apartment complexes, and then the second ring, and then the third ring, and they moved out. So the urban poor live in every neighborhood today. They're there. And so what we try and do is raise up church teams from a middle-class church to reach out to a nearby urban poor neighborhood to begin to help that neighborhood identify their assets, their skills, etc., etc. And we do that with a launch team. We begin to get them to do acts of love. Those of you that have been through CHE training, seed projects, work days, that kind of stuff. And you get that team of volunteer lay people to begin to be the catalyst for change in a nearby urban poor area. Now, so neighborhood transformation is all about volunteers helping people. So how many hours do you think a volunteer would be able to work doing this realistically a week? 10, 20? I wish that was it, but it ain't going to happen. <coughs> if you get three, four, five hours, one of the teams, one of the groups we're working with wants six hours a week. I think that's pushing it. <laughs> but the whole idea is to get lay people in the congregation to begin to learn how to reach out to do that. And our expectations from what we're doing is... We want transformed neighborhoods from the inside, people knowing their neighbors and helping each other, people knowing and growing in Christ, people taking responsibility for their own lives, churches growing, improvement in employment and living conditions, reduction in disease and crime, and then neighborhoods throughout the city beginning to implement. How do we do that? We train Lay people. Now, how do we normally train a CHE training team for overseas? Some of you that have been through it. What do we do? A TOT, a training of trainers, five days. And use very strong participatory learning. Could I get some you sitting in your pew as a volunteer to come to a week training? That's great. I'm glad to see your head. Thank you. <laughs> but in general, the answer is no. <laughs> and so we do segmented training. What that means is we people come together for a Saturday for five or six hours. They learn step one. Then for the next four months, they do the first step. The first step is choosing the right neighborhood and starting to find out some information and begin to do some acts of love in the neighborhood. Then they come back for step two, another Saturday, and they learn about how to identify assets. And so it's that type, learn, do, learn, do. Right now we're working in about eight cities in the U.S. Uh, Our base has been for this Phoenix and Tucson. And now we also are doing stuff in Minneapolis, Orlando, 
Colorado Springs, Louisville. We're starting a work with some groups here. We're starting some groups outside of Baltimore, um, outside of Denver. And so these are to give you an idea of where we're starting. Now, that's the overview. I want Ted to come up. And Ted is involved with neighborhood transformation in Tucson, Arizona. Anybody know where Tucson is? Everybody know where Arizona is? I mean, you guys are so far east here. Oh, you got that, too. Well, I'm Ted Cates. Uh, Thank you, Stan, for the promotion. I'm really the local outreach director. What's the difference? You make it work. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll get going here in a minute. Okay. Stan asked me to come and just share where we are. I got 15 minutes to do uh, about a 30-minute presentation. If we run over, is that okay? Yeah. Cool. Then I'll do that. I won't run over much. First thing I'd like to start out with. If I get this right. I'd like to talk uh, a little bit about myself, and, and I have a reason for doing that. Uh, about how we entered the neighborhoods, uh, and that's. The penetration part is a, is a difficult... I'm going to have to do this because my head shines, I guess. Uh, a little bit about my, my church, myself, uh, how we got into the neighborhoods, what was our, our, our penetration method, uh, how we started this transformational ministry. And there's some hard-earned knowledge I wish I'd have known before we started this, but there was no one to talk to about the kind of uh, barriers that I was going to face personally and the teams would face. And then uh, I'll finish up with where we are. Now, Stan told me I only had 20 minutes. Is there a doctor here that does resuscitations? Uh, the reason I ask, you'll see him, he'll go. And then he'll go. Then he had some little button in his hand, so if I hit the dirt, please no mouth to mouth. Just, okay, okay. So, we'll press on. And the reason I want to talk about myself is I'm not a seminary graduate. I'm not a... I haven't been had any ministerial training. You can see I was in the Air Force 20 years. I spent 20 years in engineering and aerospace and marketing and sales. And how did I get to be what I am? I went to lunch with a pastor once too often. Anybody done that? <laughs> Who in here is full-time ministry? Does that make the rest of us part-time Christians? Who's in here is full-time ministry? Let me see the hands again. You all are. We all are full-time ministry. So what had happened to me, and you'll see in our process, we reimagined our local outreach. We, we were moving towards the life wind model. We needed a local outreach director. The pastor kept talking to me about it. You know, God says, okay, I, I pray to God. He either has three answers, right? Yes, no, wait. But when God talks to you, what's your answer supposed to be? And if you don't say yes right away, what happens? You get miserable like I did until I said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. But I'm already retired twice. So my, my, my uh, commitment to my church is I'll do this for two days a week, and it doesn't work out either, until it gets to be a full-time job, which I hope is next year, then you're going to have to hire uh, a pastor to do it. Our church is very leading edge. We're very outwardly focused. We're outwardly led. 
in some parts of town they think we're too far out. But we still love Jesus despite what some people say. And uh, we're very community-minded. And this is our size, 25 to 2,700 adults, youth, and children on any given weekend. We're evangelical, non-denominational, and we're a member of the Willow Creek Association. But we are, again, outwardly focused, outwardly led, and our senior leadership uh, took that stance about six years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, we just had a, a series of sermons on uh, the game of life. You've seen that board game? And the sermon two weeks ago was on pride. After I built this slide, and it was already too late, I put myself before my church, so I think I need to go back and replay that one, and, and uh, maybe I missed a message. Uh, and this is how we got started. About six years ago, we, any of you know what Hope Fest is? Well, in Tucson, the medical community comes together with some of the social agencies, and, every, and people can come and get free, but they have to come there. We did that the first year. The next year, we wanted to go to the community, to be in the community, get our people out of the church, out of the pews, into the community. And we, National Make a Difference Day. Any of you hear that? Mm-hmm. We target schools in our, in our areas that we are working in now. We do handyman projects from painting to pouring concrete to painting uh, modulars. Uh, we poured a big sidewalk for the Arizona School of Blind and Deaf. And uh, that's given us a lot of reputation that, that we'll see here in, in a little bit. Uh, and the big thing was reinventing and reimagining our local outreach. Our model was a money model. We were partnered money with uh, agencies in town. We chose to instead to move people out of. You're behind me. You got the button. We chose instead to move our people out of the pews. So we said we've got to change what we're doing. So for about eight months, we took people who were fired up about local outreach. We went through a process. The process went, you have to have an end for your local outreach. It can't be just a soup and a blanket. It can't be a one-time shot. Your local outreach ministry needs an end. And the end for us went like this. We read a book, we got the team together, read a book on organic church. And we would meet after that and we'd describe everything we learned. Then we prayer walked seven neighborhoods. It's not really prayer walk, we prayer drove seven neighborhoods. Uh, They were too big to walk. And we came back and wrote down all this stuff that we saw, all these problems that we saw, that we, we, well, we can go to work on this, we can really get this going. Then we read this book, Walking with the Poor. Who's read that? The main point that this guy had, and he had lived in poor neighborhoods, was the neighborhood knows their problems. You, the outside church, do not. So we took that down and tore it up and threw it away. The next thing we did, we met with pastors from local community churches in the neighborhoods we were, we were going to target to get their vision of what they would like their neighborhoods to be. They didn't have a vision. Couldn't understand that. Then I find out that in most churches in the areas that, that the poor live in, most of the, many of the members have gotten upwardly mobile. They move to the suburbs. They go to church in the suburbs. They don't fit in. They come back to their roots, but they have no interest in the community. And that was so sad for me. Uh, that was really a downer. And we haven't given up on that. The next thing we did was we met with the leaders, the neighborhood association leaders, Stan talked about, in these neighborhoods to see what their vision was. And the big thing we got out of that was these one a month, once a year, make a difference day in their schools, they, that's all they talked about. We had reputation. And that is so critical to penetrate a neighborhood, especially with a church model when you live on one side of the town and neighborhoods on the other one. 
the other. You know, I guess the other model would have been we get our big Pantano Christian Church band with a big sign on it, drive up in front of the neighborhood leaders, association leaders' home, open the doors, walk them out, knock on the door, we're here to help you. I don't think that would have quite got the same response as did. So when we finished all that, we wrote a purpose, vision, and guiding principle statement, much like what Stan had talked about. In this process, the other aha moment was our uh, three of our pastors went to a Life Wins International training. They, they met this guy named Stan. This guy named Stan had taken the international model and modified it for urban. And that was our process. That was our other big aha moment. The first aha moment was you don't tell the neighborhood what their problems are. The second one was we got to go to Stan to get trained and really make this happen. And then after we got all that put together, we, we did recruiting through the church. You don't always get who you expect. Uh, Tim Coop was our senior pastor. Tim's retired. And after we finished the initial training and Tim's on one of the teams, he said, where did these people come from? These people came from the Lord. He sent them there because whoever does this has to be a person who is willing to love people who do not love them, who do not care what they're, if they're going to do anything for them or not. They're on that little scale from phileo to agape. They're up here in the agape area because they love without expecting anything back. And it's a very big commitment. And like Stan talked, uh, I ask, and I'll tell you in a minute. I'm getting ahead. Okay, I've got to see if I've got everything here. So considerable hands-on. Whoever leads this ministry has to stay tuned to the leaders that, and the people on the teams. Uh, I have to meet monthly. Monthly, monthly, monthly. Any constant monitoring and encouraging. And initially, I call it discouragement abatement because we didn't know the problems we were going to face. In my mind, I'm a type A personality. Let's get this going. We're going to fire up and get going. Well, it doesn't work that way. It only moves as fast as the relationships, the relationships, the relationships. Let it go. As fast as people who have time to volunteer to be involved in the community. As fast as the community leaders want it to go. It's all about relationships. I call it the wet noodle. If you push it too hard, it bows up in the middle. If you pull it too hard, it breaks in the middle. So you've got to find a common ground. But it has to be hands-on. Whoever leads this ministry has to be constantly engaged with the, with the team leaders and talking through the issues and talking through the concerns. And we do that in a group, and we uh, support each other. Stan talked about surveys. If I had I had any idea how much of a problem it was to get people, me, I'll go do a survey in somebody's house. I'll go witness in their house. I, I don't have a problem with that. Most people do, and most of my teams did. And I couldn't get them to go. Everything I could think of, I always had an excuse. And if I had known that in advance, we would have sat and talked about that. And we would have been encouraged to step forward, maybe in a different manner, at least knowing that the fear in its fear. The only way I got that fixed was after many months we had a team meeting, and one of my team leaders had actually gone in the house. And, oh, wow, the neighbors wanted to talk about their neighborhood. And they, and they said, well, that's an anomaly. We'll go to the next house. Same thing. Knocked on a house door. Here comes this guy. Got his uh, tank top on and his tattoos. Just got out of prison. Asked him to come in. And he was fired up about the neighborhood. And he wanted to be a mentor to kids so they didn't go where he went. So all the other team members are bemoaning the fact that, ooh, I can't, we can't do it. We didn't have time. Blah, 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 blah. So then I said, Paul, what did you do? I already knew. We did surveys. And it was fun. So that broke the barrier. But that was like six months. So that's, that's one thing that uh, I, I would, if you're going to do this, you've got to uh, 
remember. Uh, the team's got to meet regularly. People on the teams need a job. It just can't be sort of whatever. Uh, you'll have more questions than answers. The, the, the process, as I see it, it's like if you took a, a map of the United States, drew all the interstates in, and you wanted to go to a city that's not on the interstate, but you could get it almost there. And there's no one way to do it. And we're finding all sorts of different ways. Surveys, for example. When they wouldn't do them, couldn't get them to do them, I went to the elementary schools and offered them free pizza and MP3 players. Well, they went home and got surveys. Now, the downside of that is a lot of kids filled the surveys out so they could get MP3 players. Their parents did. That's not too hard to tell. What do you like about your neighborhood? I like to play with my friends. So I knew that was not a... I knew it didn't come from a parent. <laughs> uh, if you have uh, type A personalities, you got to watch them because they'll want to lead everything. Got to get them slowed down. Um, initially, it's building trust, and we still don't have that entirely. We've been doing this two years, and in the in we're working with. Uh, a, anybody know what a weed and seed coalition is? So our neighbors, uh, neighborhoods come together, the elected leadership, they go in for a federal grant, and the federal grant funds police activity, it funds government agencies to help them weed out the bad and seed the good. And we're a member of that. And uh, our relationship at that level has grown to where if we go to a meeting and they want us to do something, they don't say, well, you do this, you know, if it's okay, they just give us an action item. And they expect us to go like any member of the team. They took us to uh, Flagstaff this they got a national award, the Sweden Seed Coalition did, for like almost 50% reduction in crime. They called the church and asked us to go with them and receive their award. But still, in one neighborhood, they're still not sure. Two years. Relationships, relationships, relationships. I'm not trying to discourage you, because I am totally sold out to this. Totally. But there are things that if I had known when we started, I would have probably done a lot different. Uh, and you attend neighborhood meetings. We go to the coalition meeting. We go to the law enforcement meeting at the coalition level. And our teams attend their local neighborhood meetings. Visibility. We have been very visible and intentionally visible. Again, relationships, relationships, and trust. And the teams need to learn the neighborhood, the ethnic makeup, the people in the neighborhood. And you learn that with the surveys, like Stan said, house to house, door to door. Okay. Did I get ahead of myself? How many neighborhoods? We started out with. I'm going to go over that. I've got a slide for that. Well, I've gotten myself goofed up. What did I do here? Yeah, I'm, I'm. And when we uh, when we actually went in the neighborhood, we uh, this guy that I met like three years ago came to one of our uh, small group connection weekend meetings, and it turned out he became a, a key player in us being in the neighborhood. God put all that together without me having any idea, and. Uh, we met with them, and we went over generally what we talked about here, what Stan talked about. We said, we'd like to do that. We'd like to partner with you. We're here ready to do that. Uh, if you don't want to do that, that's fine. We'll still do all the other welfare and betterment things that we were doing. 
So they're talking away, and I'm sitting down, and this one lady got up and says, I don't know what all this talk is about. Why would any of you want to do that? Quit talking and sign up. That was the end of it. They all signed up, and our people had already been paired up uh, to what neighborhoods they were going to. Um, So we started in five neighborhoods. And I think I've covered most of this. So our progress to date... uh, We've actually dropped two neighborhoods. Right after we had the meeting, this lady had the major surgery, and her team never formed. And then uh, a second team, this guy uh, got called to pastor a church in his hometown. So that sort of did that one. But the rest of them we're, we're doing in different stages in each one. Uh, Stan talked about making small groups. Well, this is a curious thing. Uh, we have a grant that the neighborhoods can use. There's a process for them to apply for it, and we met with them and suggested Neighborhood Watch, and they all said, oh, we don't want that, nobody wants to do that. Well, in one neighborhood, the surveys show they want to do Neighborhood Watch. Isn't that interesting? So the neighborhood leaders maybe not know as much about their neighborhoods as they think. Uh, The teams are small. Maybe that was a mistake in the first part, but they didn't want 10 people to go sit down with two and say, hi, we want to join your team. It I think, would have been over the top. Uh, And that's where we are. And in one neighborhood, uh, it's a Hispanic neighborhood. It's an old neighborhood. It's multi-generational. We had encouraged a lady to run for neighborhood association leader. She ran, she won, and now we cannot contact her anymore. So we're working. Things happen, and you just have to deal with the life as it comes. Uh, morale is good, and all the teams are moving forward. But, uh, again, it is so hands-on, so relational. And if you start, please call me. I will be glad to talk to you about uh, I went to... Uh, thing and it showed the valley of despair where you start a project and you're happy and you get into valley of despair and then you come up, well we're working through the valley of despair and if we had known what the valley of despair was more like there would have been a lot more discussion and it would have probably gone a whole lot better but still I, I, I see the end of this and the end of this to me that I keep looking at is that we, without going through the whole thing you end up with we call them family life mentors there's one per block front of houses in a neighborhood. That person is respected in that neighborhood. That person goes through our training, and it's very long, it's very detailed, it's very spiritual-based. Jesus gets taken into those homes on that block front on a very frequent basis, but not as an evangelical call, as a transformational call, to talk about problems in family, problems in a neighborhood. But Christ goes with them, and they get to talk about Jesus. And I see revival in our neighborhoods. Without revival, without getting rid of the darkness, without moving Satan out, we're just like the government. And I don't want to be like the government. How many were on each team? Uh, initially about four. It was my target. And uh, it's changed since then. Some have left, some have stayed. We've done, uh, I have done two uh, more training, uh, I call segment one trainings. We're getting ready to load them all up and do a segment two training. And then like Stan talked, what we do is Stan, I'll call Stan, we'll talk about where the teams are. He comes down Friday uh, afternoon. Friday evening, the teams all get together and they talk about where they are. That sort of sets the stage for the next day's training because that's the other thing I meant, I meant to talk about. If we had have tried to implement our vision for local outreach, we would have been like two hogs staring at a wristwatch. Okay, everybody got it. <laughs> uh, yeah, in time, we would have gotten to where 
our mentor is in time. But the ministry would have been dead on arrival because it would have taken so much energy and time. People would say, I don't want to fool with that. I love about this is it's a process. I'm a process person. It has training. You're not asked to do something you don't get trained to do. Maybe not all the details, but you get trained enough to go do it. And the training is just in time. Not like manufacturing, almost in time, but real life just in time. So that's where we are. Thank you. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Okay, the church is a training team. Yeah. The family life mentor, the, the neighborhood committee, will choose them. Oh, okay. Now they, and I had this question. They may not be Christians. Okay. May not be Christ followers. And that's, but what happens, and I love how Stan answered that, the training is very spiritually based. So when you finish the training, I, I think these kind of things will happen. If, if you're really following Christ, you're going to be stronger. If you were sort of backslid, you're going to get tighter with Christ. If you don't know the Lord, you're going to find the Lord. And if none of it uh, makes any sense to you, you're going to quit. Mm -hmm. Same premise. Okay. So what we've tried to do is give you an overview. Now, Ted's working in a church that's got five teams working in five neighborhoods. Each team's about three to six people. And in his, all of his neighborhoods are together, contiguous. In other words, they're all four. Four Four of the five are right together in the same area. And basically what you want is one training team of four, five, three to five people for each neighborhood. A neighborhood would be defined as one easy way is the elementary school catchment area. There are census tracts and census blocks and all kinds of other ways, too. But if you want the quick and easy way, it's an elementary school. You know, the kids walk. We were fortunate because the Wheaton seat gave us a map exactly. with all of the neighborhoods outlined. The other neighborhood, the city, had defined the uh, perimeter streets for the neighborhood. Okay, not bad. It's... About 32 after, so we're two minutes over. If you have some questions, we'll be happy to answer. Two things. If you want to learn more and your city might, you think you might be interested for your city, there are a couple of things. Go to our website. Our website is www.neighborhood. Transformation, very long, <laughs> .net. When you go to that site, it's an information-laden website. On the front page is, a che- is an overview, how the program works. Secondly, that can be downloaded. Secondly, on the first page is a PowerPoint, a much more detailed PowerPoint than this one about double the slides, but what we'll use in a church, if a church says, well, tell me what this dumb thing's all about, then you can, because they want to know more than what I told you. And if you want to get a hold of me, you just put Stan in front of neighborhoodtransformation.net, and you got me. So, thank you very much. I have cards, if I would like a card, you can call Yeah.
I may not answer the phone if it's a hard question. I, I have a few of these with me, or you can download them. So thank you very much.